0: never lose why you do what you do whatever it is whatever bureaucracy whatever red tape whatever challenge whatever objections whatever never forget why do you do what you do in the very first place if you stay connected to yourself as to your why as to your purpose as to your identity if you stay connected to it opportunities will be endless they will come that's one of the biggest things that i've had to learn in my life and i can tell you because i'm still connected to why i do what i do I've been blessed. My family's been blessed, and that's a beautiful thing.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that because you're either smart, you read the show notes, or you've listened to the show before. And if you haven't listened to Crazy Money before, welcome to Crazy Money. This is the podcast where we explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning, basically life, and how sometimes the things we wish for in life don't deliver the happiness that we expect. And that is sometimes called the hedonic treadmill that we adapt to the good stuff that life delivers to us. But the flip side of the hedonic treadmill is the way that people that go through incredible trauma and endure adversity in their life come out the other side of it as healthy and as happy as they were when they went into it. Sometimes better because they see the world with more perspective and are are more grateful for their life. And part of that story is the case with our guest today, J.R. Martinez. J.R., who is my new best friend, after you hear this conversation, you'll agree with me. When he was 19 years old as a young soldier in Iraq, his Humvee hit a roadside bomb that threw the vehicle in the air and ignited the fuel inside, turning the cabin into a mini inferno that torched J.R. over 34% of his body and disfigured his face. I don't say that to be cruel. It's just what happened The skin melted off his head and face, destroyed one of his ears, and gave him third-degree burns over 34% of his body, injured his lungs, injured his liver, and a whole bunch of other things that were not particularly nice. Thus began a several-year journey of putting Jr. back together. He endured 34 surgeries. And the worst part of it, as he shares in his book, his memoir, Full of Heart, and we talk about in this interview... That Jr. one day, he took off the bandages and looked in the mirror. And as a young man who previously loved to dress to the nines, put on a little cologne and go chat up to ladies, he saw a disfigured man in the mirror. He saw a face that was distorted and changed remarkably from what he had seen the last time he had looked in the mirror. And he thought to himself, who's going to love me? How do I go forward? Who am I now that so much of what he had valued, his good looks, had been taken from him? And his story is one of redemption, of perseverance, and of positive mental attitude winning over what life has to throw at us. As he recovered, JR was asked by the medical staff to go and visit with some of the newly injured soldiers. And in the process of doing this, JR realized that he had good to do in the world yet, that he had a purpose, that he could make other people feel better, that he could give them encouragement and inspire them to get better and pull through the unimaginably tough times they were going through. Well, one day Oprah came to town and interviewed JR and thus began JR's public speaking career, JR's media career. He eventually went on to star on All My Children, the long-running ABC soap opera, and played a newly injured veteran from Iraq who returned home and had to deal with the re-entry from the war. After a, a year or so run on All My Children, he was noticed by the producers at Dancing with the Stars and was not only invited to be on season 13, he won the darn thing with the help of his partner Karina Smirnoff, his uh, dance partner, not his life partner, by the way. And thus begins Jr.'s public life as a well-known individual. Today, Jr. is a motivational speaker and author. He talks to audiences all over the world, giving them hope and motivation to reach higher heights in their own lives. Today in this conversation, which we had while Jr. was sitting in the carpool line waiting for his daughter to get out of school... We talked about fatherhood, we talked about fertility testing. Yes, we get into the details of that, pretty funny. Career ups and downs, marriage, and JR's journey. He's an incredible guy, and I know you're gonna feel better after our conversation, which will begin in just a minute before I throw it to JR. I wanna mention that this Thursday, October 7th, I will be appearing on a Harvard Business School Zoom live stream. It is a panel called Encore Careers. Is it time for yours? The link to it is in the show notes. You do not have to be a Harvard Business School person, alumnus, or faculty member or anything like that to attend this live stream. I didn't go to Harvard Business School after all, so you should be able to listen without having gone there. We're going to talk about the mistakes I made when I changed careers, what I would do differently, the mistakes I'm still making as I chase my dream, and you know what you might think about doing with what's left of your working years. Uh, my fellow panelists and I hope you join and now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with J.R. Martinez. J.R. Martinez, welcome to Crazy Money.
0: Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to dive into conversation. The word conversation, right, for me, that's how I like to lean into every conversation or right? every experience, every opportunity that I get to be with somebody else. It's always about let's have a conversation because I think... When you think of someone like myself, I think people have a tendency to think, okay, this guy's going to speak and I'm supposed to sit here and just listen. And I'm like, no, let's have a conversation. So that's the way I always like to frame it. And so I'm excited to be here, man, with you and to be able to have a conversation.
1: So what's up, man?
0: (laughs) Well, the first thing that's up is like, I'm doing this from my car as I'm sitting (laughs) in the school, the school line at my daughter's school, my nine-year-old daughter that I have to get here early to pick her up because then she has an activity right after this. And I have to like pick her up at, at the time as she gets out of school right. and like rush her because my wife is with a seven week old, you know, Oh, that's great. And that's great. That's great. Yeah, so responsibilities have shifted and we're pivoting and we're adapting, man. And, and I got to tell you as much as I'm sometimes I'm like, oh, I got to sit in that school line for an hour just so I could be at the front of the line. You know, I just know that when the world gets back to, operating under normal business hours, I'm not going to be able to do this. And so for me, this is part of the blessing, a little bit in disguise that I've been granted where I can sit here and pick up my daughter and have an opportunity to connect with her and bond with her in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to do pre COVID because I was always gone. So it's where life is. So I appreciate you being flexible and saying, Jr is going to be doing the interview from his car in the school
1: line (laughs) i've talked to people who call me from a studio in their house and their audio sounds way worse than this so (laughs) your audio sounds good hey with a seven week old at home an hour to sit in the car by yourself that's a blessing in itself (laughs) are you guys sleeping
0: I hope my wife doesn't hear that. And then she's like, Oh wait, that's why you were so eager to volunteer to get out of the house and go pick her up and sit there for an hour. It's not an inconvenience. It's an escape for that's you. Hilarious. No, no sleep. We're a team, no sleep right now. You know, and because my daughter is nine years old, there's that huge gap and that element of where you forget, like you forget you just do. And everyone's like, well, you know, you're okay. The baby's going to eat every three to four hours, you know, roughly. And and so you start thinking, okay, right. Okay, cool. Three to four hours. All right, cool. But then, you know, you remember very quickly, you're reminded that, oh, the baby eats now. That doesn't mean like, okay, then it's going to eat for a minute and then we'll see you again in three to four hours. It's like, no, the baby's going to eat for 30, 40 minutes. Then you got to change the baby a couple of times. And then, you know, you got (laughs) to soothe the baby and put the baby to sleep. And By the time all this happens, I mean, you literally are down to 60 to 90 minutes. So that whole three to four hours thing. No, you're really probably you're lucky if you get an hour.
1: How is your daughter enjoying being a big sister?
0: Dude, she's loving it for a very long time. She this is what she wanted. This is what she wished for two years ago. Unfortunately, you know, my wife had a miscarriage. That was something that was that was challenging, obviously, for our family, for her. But for me, it was like this new space, right? Sort of uncharted waters that I'd never been in before, where as a man, as a husband, as a provider, uh, you know, I had to figure out how I can best show up for my wife in that moment, right? There was nothing that I could physically do.
1: There's nothing to fix in that situation. There's
0: nothing to fix, right? And and that's the way we're conditioned as men, right? We got to fix something. That's, I'm very much a solution-based guy you tell me a problem, I quickly pivot into here's the solution. And in that case, there was nothing that I can do. And so I had to learn how to be able to show up for my wife in a very different way than I probably had ever done before. And it was just emotionally, and it was just literally embracing her and just being with her and, and, and holding her hand. And it was a challenging time. It was something that we really wanted. And it's just the timing wasn't right. And Then we had to go through fertility when we started fertility end of last year because we were like, what's going on? You start asking the questions of, you know, my wife is asking her, is it her? And then I'm asking her like, is it me? And like, what's going on? And I remember that when it was presented to us go to infertility, right? That was something again, as a guy, you're like, wait, what do you mean? I can't get my wife pregnant? Like what you know, is it me?
1: Did you go to the doctor's office with the uh, magazines in the small closet? (laughs) I didn't do that. There's a building in Los Angeles. (laughs) And every time I drive by it, I go, I've had a relationship with that building.
0: (laughs) Okay. So you never know, like, okay, where are we going? Where can we go? Where can we not go? Like on any given podcast, right? So I will tell you the fact that you asked that question, I will tell you this. (laughs) Let me share this. So this is where the blessing of COVID comes into play, right? We live in Austin and the clinic is probably about 30 minutes away at the utility clinic. So there's a week in November, uh, November of last year, 2020 we're talking about that. I'm just jam packed. And the great thing about COVID is like, all my business moved virtual, right? Which was, listen, I don't want to sound tone deaf for people that have lost someone that literally suffered a great deal financially from a health perspective. But for me, it gave me the flexibility to literally do two, three events, knock them out in one day from the comfort of my office that I set up in my house. Right. Incredible flexibility that it gave me. Did you do
1: any from your car?
0: I didn't do any from my car. That would (laughs) have been next level. I didn't do that. But what I did do is I had to provide a sample one day for my wife to then take it to the clinic. And I remember they scheduled it. And my wife was like, came home, and she's like, so, you know, next week, this date, you know, <laughs> I got an appointment. I need you to give me a sample. And I was like, that's the only date. And she was like, yeah, because I'm ovulating. And I was like, I have literally like three or four events that day virtual. <laughs> and she's like, you don't have any breaks. And I was like, well, I have like a 15 minute
1: window between this one and this one. So you pulled the Jeffrey Tubin. <laughs>
0: No, luckily I, turned, I, I stepped away, but I, my child was conceived between two virtuals. Let's just say, <laughs> talk about being under pressure, man. Like I had to like show up and deliver and I, I literally felt used. Oh. I, I mean, like I, I came out and it was like, okay, now, thank you for the sample now. Go to work. Go back to work. It's funny
1: how, I know there's a couple of dads that listen with their kids and moms that listen with their kids. So you might want to fast forward three, four minutes. Sorry. Because two things. <laughs> One, I remember being in that phase. We had our kids within 17 months of each other. Ooh. And so you were just in baby-making mode, right? And so everything is baby-making and then you go through all this and then it's baby taking care of stuff. And I remember th- <laughs> terms like colostrum, and other things that I won't go into that are like so relevant to your life, and then your kids grow up, and you're like, I forget what all that stuff is, I don't know what it is anymore.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Here's my fertility clinic experience we weren't getting pregnant right out of the gates, we were a little older, and Stacy says, Well, would you be willing to go get tested? I was like, Sure, yeah, I mean, who knows? I don't know. So I go to the clinic, and they walk into this little private room, and she points, real, you know, real professionally real she goes okay there's magazines in the top top drawer and then there's videos you know take your time whatever she leaves i open the top drawer and it's all gay porn and i was like okay all right it's los angeles new times fine not my thing i close that drawer and i open the next drawer and it's like maxim magazine and i'm like maxim like am i 14 years old is this like the jc Penney catalog like from when I was 12. Victoria's <laughs> secret, like I mean, Like, yeah. Ooh. Maxim might require me a little bit more effort than I'm prepared to give today. And then, anyway, and, and then I found the right drawer. And three minutes later, I went back up to the desk and went, boom. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I got meetings. It's, by-
0: it's so much better. My experience and your experience, oddly enough, is so much better than my best friend, who now has a 22 year old daughter. He was in the Air Force. He did 20 years in the Air Force and they went through fertility. I remember when I told him what I had to do, and he was like, dude, I have no empathy for you. He's like, talk to me when you've had to go to an Air Force base and you go literally to a regular bathroom. Oh, you God. have no, <laughs> no magazine. Oh. No, you just have an imagination and a passion and a love for wanting to have a child. And they tell you just to go into one of the stalls and come back. They gave you nothing. And I was like, oh yeah, I at least was in the comfort of my home. You at least. He's
1: a young man at that point. uh,
0: Like Yeah, you you know what? That's what being a veteran and and a service member is all about. You persevere, man. You're okay. So he (laughs) likes to tell everybody his daughter was actually like Air Force issued. But there's like another element, right? Like from manhood. When we think about manhood, right? Like we're so conditioned that this is what it is to be a man, right? You don't cry. You're tough. There's no element of vulnerability. You show no elements of weakness. You know, that's just not what we do. And that to me has been something that has forced me to challenge this whole concept and belief of what manhood is and what it looks like. And I had to kind of put my pride to the side and be like, well, maybe there is something with me that we're not able to get the result that we're looking for. And we have to go and use this incredible, you know, resource. And we got pregnant and now we have our son and it's dope, man. Because when we got pregnant my wife was like, let's do a gender reveal. And I'm like, let's do the original gender reveal. And she's like, what is that? And I'm like, birth.
1: Remember those <laughs> days
0: when you didn't find out the sex until like the baby was born. And she was like, no, you know, she starts thinking about, social media and how fun it would be. And I'm like, no, let's do a surprise. Like there's very little things in our world today that we can still be surprised about. And I was like, why not that? She was like, if that matters to you enough, then let's do it. And I was like, let's do it. So we had no idea what we were having until August 2nd of 2021. And here comes our boy. We had the names picked out for both sexes and here's Leo. So my daughter uh, being 9 years old as much as we would have loved you know to have it closer in age maybe not 17 months closer in age <laughs> but power to the people that are able to pull that off but there's this element of like having our daughter 9 years she was an only child she got so much love and attention and then now our son is going to get the same thing in his own respect but then like, she's old enough to witness the process and appreciate the process. Like she was able to go through the stages of my wife being pregnant and feeling Leo kick and move and now seeing him from a newborn and you know, now he's cooing and he's smiling and she's, I mean, sh- dude, all she wants to do, she wakes up in the morning. I wake her up at 6am to get ready for school. And as soon as she comes downstairs, cause usually he's up around that time. She's like, can I hold him? Can I hold him for 10, 15 minutes before we have to leave to go to school?
1: Mm, And it's the
0: most beautiful thing to watch that I remember telling him. I remember telling him one day, I was like talking to Leo and I was like, listen, man, you are so blessed, so lucky to have her as your sister. And I was like, if you ever say to her that you hate her, if you're ever (laughs) like getting mad at her and you say that, I will jack you up, dude, because you have no idea the big sister that you have in her. But speaking of this whole, back to this whole like manhood thing, I caught myself doing something. I push this a lot because I do a lot of, you know, for me, I didn't have a father growing up. A lot of sort of my ideas about being a man and being a father and a husband have been something that I've learned mid to late twenties now being 38 years old. And a lot of it has been because of my best friend who is 17 years older than me. And he's been my mentor. He's been the father figure. He's been so much a brother. He's been so much to me. He's the guy that has the 22 year old. And, you know, I noticed something that I did in the hospital after Leo was born. And I remember that when our daughter was born in the hospital, I'm talking to her and I'm holding her and I'm like, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to do all these things for you, my girl. But there was a very different language towards Leo in the hospital. I was like, I'm going to teach you how to take care of your mother and your sister and to be a provider. I'm like teaching him all these things. And it's like, well, why can't I say the same thing to him that I said to my daughter? Why can't I tell him that, Hey dude, it's okay. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to, you know, it's okay. If you cry, it's okay. Why? And I found myself falling into that same trap that I fell into as a young boy that luckily I was able to kind of sort of get out of that and push the boundaries and the barriers that were placed on me as a man in my thirties and say, no, dude, like, first of all, I can go to therapy. First of all, I can cry in front of somebody else. First of all, I can be incredibly vulnerable. I can tell my kids that I'm sorry that I made a mistake that I'm not perfect, that I I don't have it all figured out and that I need help. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with telling my son that he can follow the same thing and yet still be called a man. And For me, that's just something that weighs heavily on my mind. Like it was just interesting that I caught myself doing that. I wasn't even consciously making the decision
1: to do that. Well, you're nine years older now than you were when you had your daughter. So you're just more mature than you were when you had her. Your commitment is that much deeper as a parent. When my son was born, I didn't have this like, oh my God, I'm immediately in love. I just was like, okay, this is a whole other level of responsibility we're in like, this is deep now. This isn't like, okay, let's see how it goes. Kind of thing. Not that I was yeah. kidding around when I got married, it was a deeper level of commitment. And it wasn't until a few months later, we had some health issues with them that were very, very scary. And I came home from the hospital after everything was okay. And I just bawled my eyes out and I was like, oh, this is what it means to love a child. This is what it means right. to feel that kind of connection. When he was born, I did want to have, you know, we did the skin on skin thing in the hospital mm-hmm. and all that. And I was so focused on that. And because my wife passed out, she had a C section and she went through a crazy day when he was born. Oh wow. She passed out. I'm holding him on my chest and I hold him till about ten o'clock at night. He wakes up, he starts to cry. I change him, I clean him, I rock him. He just stays up all night, all night long. And I'm like, by the time the nurse came in at six o'clock in the morning, I'm so exhausted. She was like, How was it? I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. And she said, Well what do you mean? I said, he cried all night long. He didn't sleep at all. And she said, how many times did you feed him? And I said, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) They didn't come with an MRE, a meals ready to eat. No, they don't have, they didn't have any K rations in the, I just forgot. I was so tied up. And anyway, that's, that's my little joke about.
0: So when my daughter was born, my wife talks about how we knew we were having a girl my wife had a C-section on both. And she said that she remembers that when our daughter here, she is, and they showed her and I held her. My wife said she looked at me. It was like this instant love. Mm. Like she looked at me and she was like, Oh my God, he is in love. And I just remember like, you know, looking at her and just like, Oh my God. Right. I'm not sure if that was just because it was my first kid, maybe because it was my daughter. Not sure. But I could tell you that with Leo, again, a C-section. Yes, there was this element. I was like, ah, we have a boy. Like, oh my God, we have a boy. But I don't know if I felt like sort of this like immense over the top deep love the same way that I had with, with our first, you know, Lauren. And I don't know if it's because I did this already. Like I got it. Like, all right, cool. We got a boy. All right, let's, let's get into like the routine and figure this kid out. Or if it was this element of like, literally the father to daughter or like a mother would have to
1: her son there's chemicals going on in your brain you're not in control of and you know you're going to respond how you're going to respond and that's biological part of it is probably societal the way we've been conditioned to treat boys versus girls and especially as it relates to you know you're going to grow up and get a job and you're going to be a provider kind of thing but you know maybe there is a way that fathers respond to sons as opposed to responding to daughters.
0: yeah I'm interested in the psychology about that, but you know, I could tell you that now seven weeks into this, that's my dude. We get together, we have conversation. I sing to him, play all types of music with him. We sit down and watch sports, but then we sit down and we're like, yeah, check out the news, man. It's the news right now. You know? So I'm just having conversation with him about all things life related. And it's really cool.
1: Hey, is your mom still around? So she is.
0: That's a whole other conversation. I don't want to cut you off if there was a follow-up question to that, but well, I think, I mean,
1: your story and we don't have to go through your story from a to Z like you've done a million times. Let's have a conversation, but your mom is such a, and I read your book full of heart and you know, I've heard your mm -hmm. story and your mom is, is a central, obviously central part of your life. And you sort of can't tell your story without telling your mom's story. So absolutely, I just wonder how she's doing these days.
0: So, and thank you for that because I often get people that reach out to me, whether it's to do an event or whether it's do a podcast or just want to hear my story. And a lot of people like almost like believe that I'm going to start at 19, right? Like I'm just (laughs) going to skip all this stuff that happened for 19 years of my life and just start the moment that I was trapped inside that truck. And I thought I was going to die in Iraq. Right. And it's like, no, And in order to really understand how I was able to persevere through that and become the person that I am today, we have to go all the way back to, me being a child. And, you know, my mother was, as you read, has has experienced a lot of trauma from immigrating to this country, whether some people agree with that or not, losing a child.
1: There are very few of us who are not the descendants of immigrants, for the record. Right. Yes, for the record. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Thank you for saying that.
0: But even like this, being a victim of domestic abuse, I mean, my mother has experienced a lot of loss. And the only consistent thing that existed in her life was me. That was it for 19 years until I joined the military and went off to basic training. It was us, man. It was us. And there were men that came and men that went, but I was the consistent thing. So I became her lifeline. I became her her lifesaver, right? Her life jacket, right? Keeping her afloat, giving her purpose. I was her identity. I was everything for her. And that's great, but notice, like, I like to use the language. My mother experienced trauma. My mother didn't deal with trauma. And the reason I I changed that because I know we have a tendency to say about other people or ourselves, you know, I have dealt with a lot, well dealt to me, my interpretation definition is you've gone to therapy, you've gotten professional help, maybe you didn't have to go to get professional help, but you've sat with it yourself. You've worked through it. You've talked to best friends family members, whatever you've sat with those emotions. You've worked those emotions. You understand triggers. You're able to identify people. You're able to understand boundaries. Like that to me is when someone says dealt, that's what that means to me. In my mother's case, she experienced it. She never dealt with it. And I can tell you that when I was injured, that was the trigger. That was the thing, dude. That was the thing that put her over the top. And What really put it over the top was once I sort of came to this conclusion of like, okay, I'm 19 years old. I turned 22 months after I was injured. I'm still in the hospital. Life is life, man. I'm going to focus on being positive. I'm going to take it literally one day at a time. Literally. That's what I did. And I just focused on what I can control every single day. I didn't think long-term. I didn't overwhelm myself with thoughts of like one day I want to have a wife and I want to have kids. No one's going to love me and I'm not going to have a career I had those thoughts at one point. I got stuck in the asking the question, why, why me? Why, why do I look this way? All of that. But I slowly started to progress and moved into this space after I was injured, probably about a year, year and a half afterwards where I was like, oh, I replaced the why with the what, what is this supposed to be teaching me? So I started looking at every scenario, every challenge, every obstacle, a piece of adversity and replacing the why with what, what am I supposed to be learning? What is this supposed to be teaching me? I started doing a lot of internal work, you know, really having conversations, witnessing, listening to other people's conversation around their trauma, their healing process. I discovered my purpose. I started to understand my identity and what I wanted to do. And it was service. I wanted to impact people. And so as I started to discover ways to do that, whether it was through the nonprofit space and slowly starting to become a speaker, I literally took off, dude. I was like gone. I was traveling all over the place. And the challenge for my mother was, she was told by the hospital staff, you cannot go into that room and cry. You have to be strong. You have to keep it together. And so then the problem was, she's not letting out this emotion. She's not dealing with it. And then all of a sudden her son just says, okay, I'm going to go out into the world. I'm going to go figure out my life. And I took off Mm. and she's left with this experience and these emotions and these feelings And she's like, what do I do with them? And the challenge was, is that because now she couldn't necessarily control me, right? Because looking back at my childhood, you hear the word control and you think, oh my God, that sounds horrible, right? And it wasn't necessarily like this intentional thing of like wanting to control. It was fear-based. I don't want to lose the one consistent thing because I'm so accustomed to loss that because I'm afraid of that. I don't want my son to witness that. I don't want my son to go and and be with other people. God forbid my son has a best friend and that best friend's mom loves my son and is willing to do anything to my son. God forbid I said, oh, she's like my second mom. Oh no, that was a trigger (laughs) for my mom. Why? Because that put her in a space of, you're gonna replace me. I'm gonna lose you. You're gonna go somewhere else, right? And as I got older, I started to identify that. And so I got to a place where, my mom started projecting all of her fears onto me. And and I started becoming aware of it. And I'm like, why are you attacking me? Why are you telling me I'm a bad son? Because I'm not living with you right now. And I'm 23, 24, 25.
1: And you're off doing All My Children and Dancing with the Stars. Your worlds are starting to diverge in a pretty meaningful way.
0: Yes. And always brought my mother along on the journey. But then I just became her punching bag instead of her dealing with what she needed to deal with herself. She was attacking me and she expected me because I had been conditioned to do this my entire life, my entire childhood that when other people did something to her, when life did something to her, I was the thing that showed up and said, mommy, I'm sorry, mommy, it's okay. Mommy, I love you. Mommy, I embrace you in a hug. And I noticed that by the time I was twenties, I was doing the same thing. And I'm like, why are you mad at me? I didn't do anything. I literally just showed up or I literally just picked up the phone. But she was projecting everything, everything that life was triggering her. She was projecting it onto me. And I had to go to therapy, man, because I was like, this is not healthy. This is not good. And I started to notice that it was bleeding into my relationship with my wife and my daughter, who, you know, was still young, you know, and other relationships. And in therapy, I discovered this word that I never necessarily understood in this context. I never would have applied it when it came to my relationship with my mother and that's boundaries, Mm. but I needed to establish boundaries with my own mother. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? This woman has given me life (laughs) so many times over has done everything for me. And yet you're telling me, I now have to put her outside of this little fence, this little box and say, you stay out there unless you're willing to participate in this way. And then you can come in here. No. And part of that is a cultural thing too. Right. I mean, she's from El Salvador, right? El Salvador being Hispanic.
1: I mean, God, I mean, the mother is everything. And so, and what she went through just to keep you alive and keep you fed and raise you to 19 is extraordinary stuff.
0: Yeah. And also she trusted me. I mean, at the age of 17, at the end of my junior year, I was the one that suggested for us to move, from the town that we lived in in Arkansas called Hope to Georgia, because yeah. I felt like there's no future in Hope for me at that time, and I needed to get out of there. And she was willing to trust me to move to Georgia because we had a family friend that lived there, and she was like, "Okay, whatever you say." And so now I'm going to Dalton, map,
1: Georgia, the metropolis of northern Georgia and the carpet capital of the, the carpet world. Capital of the world, that's right. And your mom so worked if for you're Shaw. She actually worked for Shaw Carpets. Yes, right? she did. And if
0: you're listening and whenever you find yourself in New York and all of a sudden you hail a cab and you get into a little car, that little minivan, and then you close the door and these funky lights start going off and you're on that show. And the final
1: question (laughs) for you to
0: make the cash, baby, is what's the carpet capital of the world? It's Dalton, Georgia. You're welcome. You don't have to give me any cash. You don't have to hit me up and say you won because I share that here you're welcome. Just take that information. So
1: how did the boundaries work out with your mom? It wasn't good for her. It's still
0: not good for her. It took my mother 10 years after I was injured to finally put up a photo of the way I look now. Mm. So we're literally talking about, I had done all my children. I was speaking all over the world. I was down dancing with the stars. I wrote a book. I mean, I did so many incredible things that you would think that, Hey, okay, finally, right. We can close that, that wound heal it. It can heal. Nope. Literally it took her 10 years after I was injured. And and I could tell you that even today I suggested to my mother, mom, you should go talk to somebody. You earn that right. Look at everything. I literally framed it. Like you've survived and persevered through so much, but you don't have to be that tough anymore. You allow yourself, you've earned the right to go and, and talk and heal the way that you should. And deal with the things that you didn't have time to deal with because I needed you and you needed to do for me. Now you've earned that right. And the problem is, is culturally, there is this ideology related to therapy that that is only for the people that are crazy. <laughs> right. That's literally what she said to me. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's not, mom. I've gone to therapy. I'm not crazy. I just had life. I experienced life. And so I came to this really difficult conclusion that there was only so much that I can do. And that at a certain point I had to sort of kiss, you know, kind of put the ball back in her court and say, mom, this is your responsibility. I can't, it's like that saying that we've heard so much, right? You lead a horse to water, but you can't, you know, make him drink. And it's like, that's one of the hardest things as a family member, as a friend, when you're witnessing somebody go through trauma and go through and experience mental health to just sit back and say, there's only so much that I can do. And I just got to keep pointing them and keep showing up. So my mother, unfortunately, I'll be completely transparent with you because I believe that's the only real way to make an impact. We don't talk. And mm-hmm. it's not because I don't reach out to her. I send her texts and said, I love you. I'm just thinking about you. Just, she doesn't respond because she interprets you abandoned me because you're not fulfilling the void and showing up the way that you always did, which was monetarily. Like if you're not giving me money, then you've abandoned me. If you're not here with me, you've abandoned me. That's the way she interprets. You show your love to me because that's, that's the way she was conditioned to experience love is that you give me stuff and you're here for me and you're not far away and you don't put other people first. And that's just not, that's not healthy for me. And honestly, not even for her, but she just doesn't understand that quite yet. And so for me, I just kind of look, I look at it like this, man, you know, my wife is aware of all of this and we're like, we just have an open heart and an open mind and an open home that whenever that moment clicks for her, we're here. And until then, I'm still going to talk about her and her story in the most powerful way that I possibly can, because as you alluded to the circle back to your original question, You can't tell my story without telling hers because she laid the foundation for me to understand how to be a survivor. She laid the foundation and showed me the example of how to persevere and adapt when change presents itself. She laid the foundation and literally the root of my smile. Everyone talks about how I smile so much and I have this great smile. And I'm like, well, let me tell you something, a little backstory about that smile. One, my mother has a beautiful smile. I get that smile from her. One of the things, most powerful things that my mother said to me when I was literally seven, I think it was seven years old. I remember the night before the man that she was seeing at the time decided to take out his, you know, anger and aggression on her. I called the cops, cops took him away routine. We frequently participated in the next day. My mother's smiling. I forgot where we were, but she's like this big, beautiful smile. And I remember looking at her and asking her, why are you smiling? There's no reason to smile. I know what, I know what happened. And she said to me, I smile to invite the blessings, whatever blessings are coming our way. If I'm not smiling, I'm not able to receive them. I'm not able to see them, identify them. So I smile to invite them. And I was like, what the hell does that even mean? But as I got older, I started to realize, oh, that's sort of her saying, I'm focusing on what I can control. And what I can control is still show up every single day. And there's something admirable in that. What I told you a few minutes ago about where she is now, that's the downside of that. Is that you're ignoring dealing with the trauma. But nonetheless, she taught me how to smile and just to be open that life is still going to bless you with so many great things, despite what just happened. And you got to be able to look at that. You got to be able to focus on that. You got to be able to pay attention. And my mother's taught me how to have a, a heart and share and give to others and think of others and listen. She taught me the importance of listening to people, not just hearing people, literally listening to people. And there's a difference between the two. Listening is when you're actively present, right? Hearing is like there's background noise right now. There's a car, there's construction, there's traffic, there's a TV, there's a dog, there's kids, whatever. Like here, I'm not really actively present. She gave me the gift when I was a kid of listening. And that is something that is so important to me now that I try to pass on to my daughter, Leo, one day when he's at that stage, my wife, my best friend, you, anybody I encounter. I got to show up and listen and have an open heart and be open to whatever blessings that life is going to throw my way.
1: Did the accident, The it wasn't an accident, it was a horrible injury that was quite purposeful <laughs> on behalf of your enemies, our enemies or the opposition anyway, I don't want to get too deep down that road, but like exactly, <laughs> they were your opponents at the very least at that time. Has that over the last 18 years helped you deal with the day in, day out frustrations and just say this stuff isn't a big deal? And part two of that question is even knowing that, what irritates you on a daily basis? <laughs>
0: You know, yeah, it definitely has helped me. I've had so many moments where kind of life gets in the way and, you know, I'm trying to check all the boxes that society tells us that we're supposed to be checking, whether it's on a daily basis, weekly basis, career, you know, year long basis, whatever. And I find myself pulling myself back and just kind of saying, no, JR, you're overthinking it. You're getting way too far ahead of yourself. Simplify it. Reconnect. Why do you do what you do? Why does it matter to you? I'll tell you a perfect example of that. I mean, I know the name of this podcast does not necessarily reflect all the things that you like to have conversation about, but for me, in this particular instance, this story, I think it's important for me to touch on crazy money, right? Like, I mean, it's, we're so conditioned that we have to like pursue monetary and we have to have X amount and we have to reach it by this amount of time. And then we have to set up these goals and security and, you know, take care of ourselves and everybody right? And then when you grow up the way that I did, when you didn't have much, and my mother made less than $30,000 a year, when someone calls you and says, hey, listen, we'll offer you $1,000 to do something, you're like, I'll say yes, I'll take it. As (laughs) long as it's not something completely out of my wheelhouse, right? That doesn't Mm -hmm. align with my brand. I'll do it.
1: Dancing on national television.
0: Like dancing on national television, (laughs) right? But I found myself, the trap that I found myself getting into, and this is after dancing, after I wrote the book, dude, I was everywhere. I was speaking all over the world. People were calling me. I mean, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that that was the stage of life that I was in. That was the opportunity that was granted to me because of the stage of dancing. Dancing gave me an incredible platform. And I found myself saying yes to so much. The problem with that is, is that because I was saying yes to so many things, I found myself being spread very thin. I found myself showing up, not because I didn't care but I was too tired. I was too beat down. I was too worn out from everything that I had just done. You know, the last few days, the last few weeks, the last few months that I was, I don't want to say phoning it in, but I was just kind of like, yeah, I knew how to do the gift that God gave me. I can speak. I have a story. I would personalize it to the group that I was speaking to. But then the I was just chasing the dollar because it was a great opportunity, mm-hmm. but it also caused me to be incredibly reactive. Meaning my agents would call me and say, Jared, we got it here. We have an offer. We have an opportunity. I'm like, perfect. I'm reacting to everything that's just come being thrown at me. I kind of got out of my way a little bit where I used to be very proactive. I was out there creating opportunities. I was connected to why I do what I do on a day-to-day basis. And I lost that dude. I completely disconnected from why do I do what I do? It wasn't until probably... Four years after dancing yeah four and a half years after dancing when all of a sudden things just came to a screeching halt
1: <laughs> right yeah yeah
0: they just stopped calling now I'm calling them I now I'm being proactive calling <laughs> them.
1: what's going on where's yeah. the opportunities
0: where's the offers where's this where's the thousand dollars where's the twenty five hundred dollars where's the ten thousand dollar offers where's all these offers that were coming in like clockwork now they're not there and they're like, hey dude, it just happens and I'm like it happens right <laughs> <laughs> like, like what it taught me was one, oh, I've been so conditioned to be reactive. I lost who I was one being proactive out there, creating out there. I've also lost why I was doing it in the first place. I didn't get into this business. I didn't get into this line of work because I was trying to make a living for myself. I literally was doing it because I felt it was the right thing to do. It filled my tank. It allowed me to be of service. I was able to offer something to people in a positive way. And that's beautiful. And I lost that, man. I completely lost that. And so it humbled me. Dude, I went from, I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. Because again, as you've read in my book, I believe in being completely vulnerable and being transparent. For me, I don't believe in like sugarcoating things. I'm going to be honest with you. I remember I went from the first year after dancing I was on the road over 200 and I think they said 75 days. Wow. The following year, I literally the same thing was on the road nonstop. And then I went to South Africa for four months to film a show there. It, it just kept going, right? It just kept going. I was making really good money. I mean, I was easily making a million dollars a year, like between speaking and all the other opportunities come to 2015 when suddenly things just, uh, I'm making no money. I'm making nothing. And when I say nothing, I don't mean like the perspective, this guy is so high in the clouds that no money to him is like, he's making 900,000 or 500,000. No, I'm making less, sometimes less than hundred thousand dollars a year, which I know is still, but when you go from that to this,
1: it's a 90% pay cut.
0: I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. And I was accustomed to that life for a few years. There were times that I had nothing in my account. Dude, again, I'm sharing all this because I'm hoping that someone listening is able to be like, okay, that's just not a cool story of this guy that went through something that's not relatable to me that then went on to a career that's not relatable to me. Okay, cool. That's a cool story. No, I want people to understand that. Listen, I've gone through a lot. And what you see in the bio and all the milestones is only half of the story. So my daughter was born in 2012. I was incredibly busy. As I alluded to earlier, it stressed my relationship out with my wife.
1: <laughs> Kids will do Kids that. Kids will do
0: that. And then when I'm not home, my wife's stuck at home with the baby. She has no support, you know, because oh, I yeah. wasn't home as much, you know, even though when I came home, yes, I helped and I would tell my wife, Go, you know, whatever, but it, it was a lot.
1: The only worse thing than never being there is always being there. Always being there. That's what I've learned when I quit my job. So you guys are in this position. Then what happened?
0: Yep. It stressed our relationship out to the point where we split up. We split up when my daughter was right before she hit a year. Mm -hmm. My wife's from New York. We lived in LA at the time. My wife moves back to New York with my daughter. I'm now essentially, I'm paying child support. I'm visiting my daughter Whenever I fly to New York and we literally have an agreement where I can go get her for a week, every month for a week at a time. And I can take her to my mom's. I can see, be with her wherever. That's the life I was living for a few years. In the midst of all this travel, I would always work it out with my assistant. Okay. When I'm done with this event, fly me back to New York. I need to go see my daughter for three, four or five days. I was chasing the wrong thing, dude. And listen, there was a lot of things that both of us needed to work on and we needed to evolve and you know, as people and individuals for us to collectively do this, but we evolved and we were able to come back together, luckily, and figure it out, work on it. I moved to New York. I decided in 2015 when money literally came to a standstill and I was paying child support, I still was able to pay my child support. And that's where I was making enough money to pay child support and pay my taxes. Right. (laughs) That was important. Right. Right. But I could tell you that at the end of 2015, I finally sat down one day and I said, what the hell matters to me? What matters to me? What gets me up every day? The first answer was my daughter. The second answer was people. (laughs) Like I love being around people. I love learning from people. I love sharing with people. I love being of service to people. And I said, how do I combine those two? And one of the things that I decided to do was at the end of 2015, I was like, well, I need to be in New York. That's where my daughter is. And I'm going to stop relying on people to call my agents and then my agents to call me. I'm now going to take it into my own hands. What is something I've always wanted to do? College. So I enrolled in college in New York. I was 33 years old. I was a freshman at Fordham University nice, nice. and I moved to New York and dude, I was the happiest that, that I had been in a very long time because I wasn't under this pressure that I had to meet a certain, you know, cap amount of monetary, you know, it had this freedom and flexibility to just live life, enjoy my daughter, be a college student and figure that out. Cause that's a challenge. And then all of a sudden things started kicking off, man. All of a sudden my agents, there they are. They call, here's an offer. It's good money. Oh, okay. But now I'm getting textbook knowledge that I can pair with life experience. And now I'm an even more powerful speaker. Now I have even more knowledge that I can share with people. I'm impacting in a very different way. And so the reason I share that is because listen, we're all going to get sucked into this trap of where you're pursuing this sort of monetary goal, but never lose why you do what you do. Whatever it is, whatever bureaucracy, whatever red tape, whatever challenge, whatever rejections, whatever, never forget. why do you do what you do in the very first place? What caused you to get into that line of work? If you stay connected to yourself as to your why, as to your purpose, as to your identity, if you stay connected to it, opportunities will be endless. They will come. You just have to stay connected as to why you do it in the very first place. That's one of the biggest things that I've had to learn in my life. And I can tell you, because I'm still connected to why I do what I do, I've been blessed. My family's been blessed. The opportunities have still managed to come in over the last five years. Again, I don't want to seem tone deaf, but I've still managed to be blessed over the last you know year and a half with COVID. And my family, we continue to be blessed. And that's a beautiful thing.
1: Well, that's awesome, man. And don't worry about being tone deaf. I get accused of being tone deaf almost every week. <laughs> I'll take the heat for you on that one. And speaking of purpose, your daughter is about to get out of school. You're in line yes. in carpool. So, real quick, tell me about the rebirth podcast, and then I got my last question for you.
0: Oh man, thank you. You know, for me, I refer to the day that I was injured. Not a lot of veterans call it their Alive Day. I call it my rebirth. Show me your and watch.
1: Show me your watch. Oh
0: my man. My man. Here it is. I got the So when you're a girl dad, especially with a girl dad that has a lot of hair, curly hair. Yeah. I have hair ties always. That's my thing. I always have a hair tie. I'm coaching my daughter's softball team. And there was a girl the other day. I was like, oh, I need a hair tie. I lost mine. I was like, I got you. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm the guy with hair ties. But I refer to the day that I was injured as my rebirth. That implies, obviously, something had to die in order for something else to be born. I believe parts of me died that day and left room for me to be born into this person that I am today. But I believe all of us experience rebirth on a day-to-day basis. Our identities are constantly changing. Life constantly throws adversity and challenges and presents us with change. So we're all having to experience rebirths, right? And so for me, I decided to start a podcast like a million other people in the world and decided to call it Rebirth. And it was more to just have conversation with people similar to what we're doing right now and learn about their rebirth and their life. And it didn't have to be this major traumatic thing that like what happened to me, it was probably just a career shift. You've talked to people, you know, the stories. And so for me, I'm just so honored that I get to share this concept of rebirth with my listeners. And then I get to discover how other people have experienced rebirths in their own life. So if you feel inclined, come check out the rebirth podcast and, you know, you just hopefully learn from each other, but that's what I'm trying to do.
1: We'll put a link to it in the show notes before I lose you to uh, fourth grade politics. The <laughs> last question, do you feel rich? Yes.
0: Yes. And if you looked at my bank account, that's not where it's at. <laughs> it's not where it's at. It's all in my heart, man. It's in my soul. It's honestly, to be completely honest with you. And I know there's some people are like, "Oh, of course he's going to say that. Uh, he's smooth. no, doing this with you, this is enriching to me. Like having the opportunity to meet new people, to be on your podcast, to talk about life, to rap, to laugh, right. To have a moment of silence. Right. I mean, that to me is what life is about. And I am so blessed that I get to do that every day and meet new people. And so I am rich because I have a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful daughter. I have a beautiful son I have a best friend. That's amazing. I have a beautiful mother. I have a beautiful group of people that are in my life day to day, but I'm blessed because I also get to meet other people's beautiful people and dude, what more can I ask for in life? I get to learn every single day from people that are on their own rebirth or on their own journey. And then I get to take that information and I get to go share it with other people. I'm rich, dude
1: you know, this has been the most free flowing, (laughs) non-structured conversation I've had in 122 episodes. So I thank you for that because I got a whole list of I got a list of questions. You've answered them a hundred times. You don't need to do that kind of interview again. So thanks for just talking to me. This this has been a lot of fun,
0: man. I love this format. I mean, this was enriching. It really was. And so you know, listen, we got to do it again at some point, And then maybe we can get to the other questions that were never asked and answered. Oh, those um, were
1: all predictable, but we'll definitely do it again for sure.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, my friend. It was a pleasure. Thank you for creating this platform, for sharing this platform, you know, to everybody out there, man, just ask yourself the question why. And once you get that answer, then everything else from that point on is a what, when am I supposed to be learning?
1: Amen. All right, JR. Appreciate it, man. Take care. Take care, man. Thank you so much. That was so fun to talk to JR and just have a casual conversation like two dads talking over the phone, sitting in carpool line. I often do that, by the way. I get to carpool like an hour early so that I'm at the front of the line, basically. I just take a book or do some work on my phone or just sleep or meditate or something like that in the car. By the way, if you meditate in your car and one of the teachers comes up to you and like knocks on your window, she thinks you're drunk. And it's weird. But anyway, make the most of your time in the carpool line. Let's get to takeaways. Number one, if you can survive it, you can survive it. I don't ever want to have to prove my metal, my intestinal fortitude in the way that that JR has. But it is an interesting part of the human spirit and psychology that if you can live through it, that you can actually go on to have an extraordinarily full life. And I don't think I know anybody that's had as full a life or any more full of a life than JR has He's done so many incredible things, including inspiring tens of thousands, at least probably millions of people with his story and his ability to survive. So if you can survive it, you can survive it. Money stream, number two, money stream. What a generous thing for JR to do is to be as frank as he was about the ups and downs in his income over the years, you know? And that's that's the way it works when you're in that kind of a business. You're a speaker at live events and then COVID happens and guess what happens to your income? What? Goes away. So while the sun is shining, make hay. But while you're making hay, save some of that hay, ladies and gentlemen, and have multiple revenue streams if you can possibly have them at all. Lastly, again, Jared was extraordinarily generous and being vulnerable and sharing the insights into his marriage and his relationship with his mother. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about past a certain point, ladies and gentlemen, of course, always past a certain point, why more money doesn't make us that much happier. The social science always points to a couple of things. The things that make you happy are good health, positive social relationships, and having a sense of purpose. J.R. clearly has a sense of purpose, and he needed to get back to that sense of purpose to really understand how important his family was. Fight for your family, fight for your family, fight for your family, even after what he's done. The stuff that he went through, the day-to-day in marriage, the day-to-day with your family can be overwhelming at times, and you got to keep fighting. That is it for this week. More great stuff in the future. Lots of fun conversations that I've got recorded. Not sure what order they're going to come out in, to be quite frank, so I'm not going to tell you what next week is because I don't know yet. Anyway, hope you're having a great day. Keep it going. And In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.